I'll ask you to turn in your Bible now to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. We have been studying together through the Gospel of Matthew now, and we've come to this very pivotal chapter. Our text is actually going to be verses 20 through 24, but I want to jump a little bit backwards to remind you of the background and what's going on. So let's jump around just a bit, starting in chapter 16, verse 4. Jesus says to the people who come to question him from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They said, show us a sign. If you're really the Son of God, prove it. Of course, he had done already many wonderful works, but they refused to believe. So he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now if you drop down to verse 13, it says that when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That was the very question that the Pharisees put, right? Who are you? Prove who you are. So he asked them, who do people say I am? And verse 14, they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered for them. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now if you'll skip down to verse 20, he says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew chapter 16 is a turning point in the book. It really is in a lot of ways. It's a turning point geographically. 
Up to this point, Matthew has recorded Jesus' ministry primarily up in the northern part of Israel called Galilee, around the lake. But now Jesus is going to turn toward Jerusalem, going back down to the south, where he will enter into the capital city and to a final kind of showdown, as it were, with the Jewish religious and political establishment and ultimately to his sacrificial death. It's a turning point in the book. It's a turning point because up to this point, Jesus' ministry has been characterized by quite a bit of popularity. He has fed and healed, and he's had crowds and crowds of people thronging to see him around the shores of the Lake of of Galilee. Um, But from now on, he will be increasingly walking a lonely path that will culminate in his abandonment by even his disciples and apparently even his Father in heaven. It's a turning point. It's a turning point from the first half of the book in which you have the majority of Jesus' miracles recorded to primarily preparing his disciples now for what's about to come. It's it's a huge turning point in the fact that uh, this first half of the book sort of culminates in Peter's great confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Jesus begins to pivot to this. The Messiah must suffer and die before rising again. It's a transition. You have, in the beginning of chapter 16, the glories of Jesus at its highest point after Peter confesses him to be the Son of God. He goes up on the mountain of transfiguration and we get a sort of preview of his glory. Like God pulls the curtain back and lets you see the glories of Jesus shining through for just a moment. But he turns from that glory to the incredible humiliation and suffering of the cross that will characterize the latter half of this gospel. And that before, of course, entering again into his glory. You see, Jesus' hour was coming. Uh, We find that in the book of John, the gospel of John, another one of the four gospels, that Um, Jesus uses this phrase over and over again. My hour is coming. My hour is not yet come. Jesus spoke about this hour. In other words, this was the timing that God had determined for the Son of Man when He would be lifted up. And that lifting up, that hour in which the Son of Man would be lifted up, in which Jesus would be lifted up, is a reference first of all, to His exaltation, to His glory. Lift up the Son of Man. In fact, Jesus says it in John 12 this way, that the hour, it's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. But it was also a kind of play on words that was a reference to the crucifixion, another kind of lifting up of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus' death would be the very thing 
for which we glorify Him most today. What have we sung about? We've sung about the Lord Jesus who gave Himself as a sacrifice for us on the cross, right? In this way, He is lifted up. He said, uh, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So his humiliation actually becomes a kind of attraction. In Isaiah chapter 52, the prophet says that um, the Messiah will have glory. He will obey God and be glorified. He says it this way, my servant, the Lord says, my servant will act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But then the very next breath, he says, and his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And he begins to talk about the death of the Messiah. So the disciples they got the glory part of this lifting up. But what they didn't yet comprehend was that the lifting up of the Messiah had two distinct stages. As Peter later said, the Messiah should first suffer and afterwards enter His glory. 1 Peter chapter 1. So, up to this point, the disciples, I don't think they just quite got it. Um, their conception of the Messiah was one of glory only. And that was the conception that most of the people of Israel had. When Messiah comes, it will be glorious, right? Because, of course, it will. There were many predictions of the glories of the coming of their Messiah. But that's all they got. And this misperception is probably why Jesus says to them what He does in verse 20. Has this ever puzzled you? He tells them right after Peter's glorious announcement about the fact that He is the Messiah, He says, don't tell anyone that I'm the, the Christ. Because... Peter's declaration isn't wrong. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There's nothing wrong with that. But right now, the disciples' lack of knowledge of the Scriptures would have skewed their public declaration of the Messiah because they still only had part of the picture. And if Peter could get it wrong so badly, then how much more so everyone else if you are walking around publicly proclaiming that He is Messiah. So what He does is He takes this opportunity to admonish them to silence while He continues to instruct them from the Scriptures and according to the will of God what the Messiah's ministry will really look like in all of its fullness. You see, the people of Israel, they were anxious to have a Messiah. Don't, don't make any mistake about that. I mean, in one sense, they were, they were anxious for glory. They were anxious for blessing. I mean, they wanted someone to come feed them with miraculous bread from heaven. I mean, they wanted someone to come and 
heal all of their sick. They wanted someone to come and deliver them from political oppression by the Romans. They were all about that. And you know, I think in some ways it really is the same today in terms of people's acceptance of a kind of a form of Christianity or what they think is Christianity. They're anxious to accept a Messiah to deliver them from poverty and give them money, uh, give them a job, give them health, to give them deliverance from all of the injustices that they, they suffer. And I think that's the appeal that we see of the kind of gospel that says, if you come to Jesus, God will give you immediate health and wealth and prosperity all your life. I mean, that's what God has for you. You can see these people were no different. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted, but that's not the totality of the Messiah's mission. And he, 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 he's at pains to begin now to instruct them in what really was in front of him. Throughout all of his ministry so far, Jesus has given the people a foretaste of the glories of the age to come. When he heals their sick and when he raises them up and he uh, makes the, the deaf to hear and the blind to see, I mean, they get a foretaste of that age that is to come. But now in verse 21, notice what he does. It says, verse 21, from this time on, he begins to shift and he begins to teach them and to show them that glory is preceded by suffering. So the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah that Peter makes up in verse 16 leads Jesus to immediately clarify what his messianic mission must involve. And it will involve something that they did not expect. And he reveals it to them now. He reveals three things here. Uh, to them that this mission will involve. Three things that so far they have not even thought about, even though they recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. So what does He reveal to them? First of all, Jesus reveals that suffering lay ahead for Him. Suffering lay ahead for the Messiah. In Jerusalem, He says, the Son of Man must, quote, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and would. Think about some of the things that our Lord would suffer at the hands of these people. He would suffer attempts at entrapment. They would send people to Him, smart people to try to trip Him up to use his words against him, to sort of back him into a uh, legal or a a theological cul-de-sac so they could discredit him. Of course, those things failed miserably. It's amazing how our Lord put those people to silence. He left them with their mouths shut. But he suffered... These attempts, he suffered, when that failed, he suffered just plain old subversion. They turned one of his own closest followers against him, Judas. 
he suffered slander. The Savior of all the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords, was maligned. He lied about, remember, they coerced witnesses to give false testimony against him. Uh, He said he wants to destroy the temple, to undermine our religion. (laughs) They tried to get people to testify this at his trial, remember that? They couldn't even get people to agree. (laughs) The testimony of the witnesses uh, didn't coincide so that they finally sort of gave up on it in the end, but that was what they attempted to do. He would suffer slander. He would suffer insult. Here is the Son of God, Almighty God Himself. And the people say, If God will have you, let Him save you. God doesn't care about you. You're a, you're a criminal. You, you're, you're getting what you deserve. And, and He had the Almighty power to come and call 10,000 angels to deliver Him. And He, he endured He suffered public humiliation. He suffered ridicule. And of course, all of the physical suffering, the beatings, the pain, the scourgings, the whippings, and ultimately, death. Jesus said, this is what is in front of me as the Messiah. Something that blew their mind, something they didn't get. The suffering of the Messiah. And he said, secondly, I want you to know this, that it's necessary for me to walk into this suffering. It's necessary. You see, he says that. He began to show, the text says, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. It is necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer. He's not just saying that it's, going to happen inevitably, but that it must happen. That if he would be obedient to the Father, that he must turn toward Jerusalem and toward the suffering that awaited him there. And he was willing. In spite of the strongest temptations of the devil to turn away, he was willing. You ever had something that you knew you should do, that you didn't really want to do, and you found like every reason in the world not to do it, to postpone it, to wait, to get out of it? You made your excuses, you made other plans, you did anything you could do. Don't imagine that your Savior was not tempted to turn away from the cross. I don't understand it, but I'll tell you this. He was tempted in every way like we are. Do you believe that? Don't imagine that He was not tempted to turn away But Luke says that he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. He turned his back on all that he had experienced so far, all of the 
sort of public acclaim, and he turned his face to what he knew would be suffering. In fact, Isaiah prophesied that he would set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. I mean, kind of a determined set in his jaw that he will obey the Father. He will do God's will in spite of the overwhelming pain and sorrow and affliction and injustice and humiliation that lay before him. He said, this is necessary. This is my Father's will. And he knew it was necessary because of the predictions of the Old Testament. You see, where the disciples comprehended the Old Testament, the Scriptures that they had only so very primitively, the Lord immersed Himself in the Word. Remember, even from a little child, He knew the Word so well that He could argue with the rabbis and the teachers. He, would, he immersed Himself in it ever since, ever since as, as a child. And He knew the Scriptures predicted the, both the glory of the Messiah, but before that, the suffering of the Christ. And He was determined to fulfill the Scripture, even to the point of laying down His life. Don't make any mistake. No one took Jesus' life. No one, no one robbed Him of His life. He turned toward Jerusalem. He set His face to go to the suffering that was before Him. He viewed it as a necessary thing because of the will of God, the predictions of the Scripture. His suffering was necessary. His death was necessary ultimately because God is just. God's justice means this, that God won't leave any sin unpunished. God doesn't just overlook sin. I want to tell you today, listen to me, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, if you're on your way to heaven, it is not because God has overlooked sin, pretended that it doesn't exist. He is not that kind of God. He is absolutely just. Every corner of the universe will be permeated by the justice of God. God is just. And that highlights the great tension of the universe. How can God be totally just and at the same time save sinners? Sinners need to be punished. But He's determined to save sinners and yet be just. Christ Death is necessary. Christ's death as a man is necessary because only death can satisfy God's just judgment against sin. So Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners so that anyone who would believe in Him could be free from the judgment and the justice of God. God's justice could be satisfied. His righteous indignation could be poured out against sin in the person of the substitute for man, Jesus Christ, so that all who would believe in Him may be in a new relationship with God. 
God can be just and be the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. This is why the cross, the suffering of the Messiah, was necessary. And I tell you today, if you would just cry out to God, God, I am a sinner. Forgive me. Jesus, save me. I tell you that you could be set free from your sin and have a relationship with the Almighty God. Jesus said, my suffering is is necessary. It is the will of God. It's predicted in the Scriptures. And it is the only thing that can provide salvation for mankind. And then he says, thirdly, he tells them, and the Messiah will also be raised again on the third day. And that too was predicted in the scriptures, in the prophets. And yet what faith it must have taken for Christ to trust that word. Because Satan was whispering in his ear every step of the way. Are you sure you're really the Son of God? Are you really the one who was predicted to come? Are you really the Son of God? How do you know you're not deceived? Satan would constantly whisper in his ear, Will your father really come through for you? Or will he abandon you? And you know, from all outward appearances, it looked like God abandoned him, didn't it? And in, in, a, in a real sense, he, he did, as it were, abandon him as he took our sins upon himself. You could just imagine. I mean, maybe, maybe it's hard for us to relate, and I understand it is hard for us to... <laughs> who give in to temptation so easily, who are, who are actually inclined to give in to temptation, to imagine the Savior being tempted, and yet He is tempted. Again and again, the devil whispers in his ear. He sa- the tempter says, don't you know that I have the power of death? And there's an element of truth in that. The scripture says he's the one who has the power of death. Book of Titus or Timothy. Don't you know I have the power of death? Your father's turning you over to me. He's abandoning you to me. But Christ trusted the father. He trusted the word that said that the Messiah will be raised again to enter into his rightful glory. And, and, and in his faith and trust and obedience, he turned his face to go to Jerusalem because of the hope that was set before him. Now, the disciples, for their part, I don't think they even seem to hear this last part. <laughs> I'm going to decide that the Lord Jesus would rise again from the dead. I mean, they, they were paralyzed back when he said the Messiah must suffer many things and be killed. I mean, here's the one that they hoped in. And all, of they, all that they thought about Messiah was that he'll bring the glories of the kingdom and it will happen now. It'll be our, 
you know, everything glorious in the immediate, in the near term. And so you see their response vocalized by Peter, who'd spoken again for them earlier. And now he says, look in verse 22. You see his comment? He actually takes Jesus aside as if to persuade the Son of God and change his mind. And he says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus' reply in verse 23 is uh, pretty strong, isn't it? He, look, he, 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 he turns on Peter. He turns on him. He looks him right in the eye and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance, a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here is perhaps one of Satan's most insidious temptations to use one of Jesus' own disciples, one of, the, one of his closest disciples at that. In fact, the very guy who has proclaimed this great proclamation that he is the Messiah, to use this man as his spokesman. And through Peter, the tempter says, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. Don't go to the cross. There's an easier path to glory There's a wiser path. Why would God choose this for you? If your father really loved you, why would he do this? This is not... He's promised you glory, hasn't he? Does this look like glory? This doesn't make any sense. And I don't know if you you can hear in that ever the way that the serpent whispers in your ear. Hey, this is too hard. doesn't make sense. This is not the right way. Hasn't God promised you this? Why is he... Letting this happen to you. But Jesus recognizes in Peter's comment the serpent's hiss. The very one who said, if you are really the Son of God, command these stones to be made into bread. Right? Because the Spirit had led Christ into the wilderness for fasting and prayer. And the serpent said, no, there's an easier way. He he calls you His Son. If you're His Son, you have all the authority of God. Take care of yourself. He would want you to have food. Or remember, He takes him to a high place and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and He says to him, if God's really your Father, if you're really His Son, then worship Me and I will give you all of the nations of the world. And why is, this, why is that a temptation? Because, listen to me, all of the nations are the rightful inheritance of the person who is called the Son of God. And one of the most important psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 2, the father says to his son, ask me and I will give you all of the nations to be your inheritance. And of course, what the father demanded of the son is that he lay down his life. And as a reward for his obedience, his 
his earthly human obedience. He would be given rightful authority over all of the nations of the earth. And here is the one who, in a sort of a, a sort of way, is the prince of the world who's offering to the Messiah a sort of shortcut to the promise that God has made to him. Just acknowledge me and I'll relinquish my claim on all of the nations of the world. They can be yours. You can have a people from every tribe and language on the face of the earth. Just, But you don't have to go through all of this suffering, all of this torture that lies ahead. God wants you to be glorified. And, and it's that same, that same voice that now, as it were, speaks through Peter. Why go to the cross? The same speaker using this frail human instrument And so Jesus turns to him and he speaks not primarily to Peter, although it is to Peter. He speaks to the one who really is tempting him through Peter's ignorance. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block, a temptation to me. He sets his mind and his heart to obedience to the Father. And I tell you, just by the way, listen to me. Satan's most insidious temptations often come spoken through the lips of well-intentioned people. Don't you know? People like your, your family, a family member of some sort, or, I mean, an unbelieving or an uncommitted or ignorant family member or a, uh, a friend or a co-worker, or a classmate. In this case, the devil tempted him through Peter. And the problem with Peter, and, and honestly the problem with a lot of you know, well-intentioned people, is this. Jesus said to him, look at the end of the verse, you are, he, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're not thinking God's thoughts. You are, you're thinking, I mean, Peter wasn't telling him something absurd. He was telling him what seemed reasonable, humanly speaking, right? Don't go to Jerusalem. They hate you down there, right? Remember those guys that came up here and were questioning you from Jerusalem? Those guys didn't walk away happy. Uh, let's, let's go somewhere else. Don't go down there. All right, let me help you out here, Lord. Let me give you some strategic planning here. We need to think about this a little more carefully, right? It seemed reasonable, and that's the problem with human thinking. It seems reasonable to us. So many people that you know will give you advice and give you counsel that that seems, humanly speaking, very reasonable and really cuts exactly against the Word of God. They don't understand why you would live this way. It doesn't seem to make sense. It seems totally upside down. Jesus is going to come back to that. We'll look at it next week. But 
He says, Peter, you're, you're not thinking God's thoughts. You're thinking like a man. You're thinking naturally. You're thinking the way any human being would. Somebody says, you know, hey, I just want you to be happy. And I'm sure God does too. Surely He doesn't want you to suffer. He loves His children, right? And that's what Peter's saying to him, essentially. But Isaiah 53.10 said, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so Jesus is telling Peter, listen, your thoughts are not God's thoughts, neither are your ways His ways. And that is so often the case. In our lives, and with people around us who would, who would steer us in a way other than God's Word, God's plan for His Son was first suffering and then what? Glory, right? First suffering, then glory. First humiliation and then exaltation. First self-denial and then eternal joy. And in fact, the path to glory would be through sacrifice. There... There is no shortcut. And then Jesus says, in verse 24, that the same is true for His followers. Look at verse 24. If anyone would come after me, then he's going to have to come after me. And you know where I'm going? I'm going to a cross. I'm going to death. The path to life is death, he says. The path to glory is suffering. The path to joy is relinquishing of self. He says, if anyone would come after me, verse 24, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, if you would be a follower of Him, you must die. There's no other way to say it, is there? He says, if you're going to be my follower, you have to take up a cross. To take up a cross would be to walk to your execution. They would make the Roman prisoners generally carry their cross or a piece of their cross up to the place where they would be crucified. It was an extra indignity. You will be the beast of burden for the very instrument of your, uh, your crucifixion. And so Jesus says, man, this is what lay before me. And if you want to follow me, this is what's going to lay before you. And in fact, we know that some of those men were actually crucified themselves. That this was very specifically their fate. But Jesus says as a principle, as a general principle, if you would come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. You must die 
And he says, you must be willing to die for me. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to be willing to die because I'm going to die. And if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Christians are characterized by this, that they love Jesus and they trust Jesus. And if that means death, then that means death. If that means persecution, then that means persecution. Some of you say, well, I don't know if, I don't know if I would have, I don't know if my faith would be that strong. <laughs> I mean, if I ever got to the point, you know, like hard to imagine, but if I ever was in a place where they said, if you don't renounce Jesus, then you will be put to death. Would I, would I renounce him or not? And you know, it is hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine for, for most of us. And we will be entirely in that moment dependent on the same grace that has brought us to faith in Christ. And it'll be a grace that'll be sufficient for that moment. Jesus says, this is the way you know who is truly mine. He, does, he knows that life is more than just breathing in and breathing out. He knows that I am life. And as long as you have Jesus, you have life. Who cares what they can do to you? You're going to follow me. You must be prepared to die. But you know, the Scripture teaches that there's, a, I guess you might say in some ways, an even deeper level um, at which Christians die. And that is that they die um, spiritually and are raised again spiritually. Uh, they die to their whole old way of life, their whole old self. They die to sin. They die to idols. They die to anything that takes them away from Jesus. They die and they're born again into a new life. They're buried with Him in baptism unto His death and they're raised with Him to newness of life. And now they are willing to obey God even when it goes against natural human thinking and wisdom. They're willing to obey even when it means suffering and sacrifice because they know that there is no greater joy than to be with God. They look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the suffering. They know that suffering is the path to joy. They know death is the path to life. They know as long as they have Jesus, they have all joy, they have all satisfaction, they have everything that we were made for, and they can endure any pain, any sorrow, anything that may happen. They're convinced of that. And so they trust and they obey. They die to their sin. They know that glory is coming, rest is coming. And so they get up every day and they walk in a battle against their sin, in the suffering of this life, and in a willingness to deny themselves and to trust God even in the pain and in the sacrifice. 
Jesus said, if you're going to be my follower, this will be your fate. You have to die to live. And, and again, we're going to come back to this next week. These, are, these two passages are so intertwined. But I want to now, in conclusion, draw our attention back to the Savior. Okay? Not to us, His followers. Not to our experience. But to the Savior Himself. Just think about what could have gone different here. I mean, theoretically, potentially. I mean, here is a, here's a turning point for Jesus, right? Miracles, feeding, healing, crowds, acclamation on one hand, and down toward Jerusalem, entrapment, intrigue, Suffering, humiliation, abandonment by everyone, including his father, and pain and suffering physically and spiritually for the sin of the weight of the world's sin and the anger of God, all pinpointed down on this one person. All of that lay ahead. And and here he is in this crisis moment, as it were. And there will be several sort of crises, temptations like this. One was in the wilderness, another will happen in the garden. But here he is at this sort of turning point in the middle of his ministry on earth. And which way will he go? Imagine if he'd made a different decision at this point. Where would you be? If he'd gone... In a different direction, if he'd given in to temptation, where would you be? If he'd been persuaded by Peter, really by the tempter, where would you be? If he'd turned back away from Jerusalem and away from suffering and gone back to the crowds and continued to just revel in the acceptance of his people, where would you be? But he says, I have set my face toward Jerusalem. I have suffered and died so that you might live. I satisfied the justice and the righteousness of God and demonstrated his love and have overcome what for you was an insurmountable obstacle of having peace with God to satisfy his justice, so that you might be free, that you could be cleansed and washed from sin, made right with God. May Jesus Christ be praised. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we glory in Jesus Christ. He is our boast. He is our righteousness. He's our hope. He's our King, our Lord, our Messiah, the only name in which we trust, where there is no other name under given among men whereby we must be saved. He is our Savior, and we rejoice in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. We come to you in the name of Jesus as our only hope for righteousness in your sight. We pray that in this moment you would draw men and women, young people, boys and girls, we would, you would draw them to Jesus 
Grant them faith. Grant them repentance. Cause them to be born again as they look to the only one who could ever bring them into a relationship with you. I pray that you would be merciful even now as we contemplate these things, as we sing this hymn, as we pray now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.